This is Unsung History, the podcast where we tell the stories of people and events in American history that haven't gotten much notice. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then interview someone who knows a lot more than I do. Today's episode is about Mary Mallon. I had heard of Mary Mallon prior to now, but only by the nickname she hated, Typhoid Mary, and it turns out I hadn't known much of her story at all. Mary Mallon was born in what is now Northern Ireland in 1869. She immigrated to the United States at age 15. There weren't a lot of high-paying jobs for immigrant women in New York City, but eventually Mallon was able to find work as a cook which paid better than many jobs. By all accounts, she was a very good cook. In August 1906, Mallon worked for the family of Charles Henry Warren, a wealthy New York banker, and she went with them to a rented house in Oyster Bay on Long Island. Typhoid fever was rare in Oyster Bay, but in late August and early September, six of the 11 people in the house came down with typhoid fever. The owners of the house, Mr. and Mrs. George Thompson, were concerned that they would not be able to rent out the house again, and they hired investigators to find out the source of the typhoid. When water samples from pipes, faucets, toilets, and the cesspool were all negative for typhoid, the Thompsons hired civil engineer George Soper to investigate further. Soper reviewed the facts of the case and interviewed the Warren family. He learned that shortly before the outbreak, they had hired a new cook, Mary Mallon, although they insisted that Mallon had been healthy. Soper traced Mallon's job history and found that in seven of the eight previous families she had cooked for, typhoid fever had developed, with a total of 22 cases reported. Mallon knew nothing of this investigation. She had since started working for another family in a Park Avenue home, and she hadn't left a forwarding address with the Warrens. It wasn't until an outbreak of typhoid in that home that Soper was able to locate her. In March 1907, Soper appeared in the Park Avenue kitchen and told Mallon that she was spreading typhoid via her cooking. He demanded samples of her feces, urine, and blood to test for the bacteria Salmonella typhi. Mallon, who had every reason to believe she was perfectly healthy, chased him away with a carving fork. Soper did not have the authority to demand her to comply, but he convinced the New York City Health Department that Mallon was a healthy typhoid carrier, and she was forcibly arrested as a public health threat. It took five policemen and Dr. Josephine Baker, who had to sit on her at one point, to get Mallon into the ambulance. Baker reported, She fought and struggled and cursed. I told the policeman to pick her up and put her in the ambulance. This we did, and the ride down to the hospital was a wild one. At Willard Park Hospital, Mellon was compelled to give samples, where massive numbers of typhoid bacteria were found. On March 19, 1907, Mellon was sentenced to quarantine in a one-room bungalow on North Brother Island, where she had to give stool and urine samples three times a week. Despite doctors urging, Mellon would not agree to have her gallbladder removed, because she did not believe she was sick, 
In any case, it was a risky operation that wasn't usually successful in removing the disease. Mellon was also unwilling to give up cooking, since there were no other jobs that paid as well. Mellon sent her own samples out for analysis to an independent lab, whose report was that they did not find the typhoid bacteria. She sued for her release, but the judge sided with the health department. In June 1909, Mellon wrote a lengthy letter to her lawyer, the longest surviving letter we have from her. In it, she wrote in part, There was never any effort by the board authority to do anything for me, excepting to cast me on the island and keep me prisoner without being sick nor needing medical treatment. I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. Even the interns had to come to see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say, There she is, the kidnapped woman. Dr. Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how the said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. Finally, after Mellon had been quarantined for nearly three years, the city's new health commissioner, Ernst J. Letterly, decided that she could be free as long as she agreed to stop working as a cook. She finally agreed and was released in February 1910, but she was given no training in any other work. Mellon worked for a while as a laundress, although she made less than half of what she had made as a cook. Eventually, she started cooking again, giving fake last names to evade the authorities. Soper was unable to find her until 1915, when he was called in to investigate a large typhoid outbreak at the Sloan Hospital for Women in New York City, where 25 people had been infected and two had died. Mellon tried to flee, but she was found and returned to quarantine on North Brother Island in March of 1915. She remained there for 23 years until her death of pneumonia in November 1938. Although Mellon was the first person in the U.S. identified as a healthy carrier of typhoid, by the time of her second quarantine in 1915, many healthy carriers had been identified more than 400 in New York alone. None of the other healthy carriers was forcibly confined, even the other cooks, or those who caused more cases and more death than Mary Mallon did. To help us understand more about the context of Mary Mallon's life, I'm speaking now with Kari Nixon, a literature and medical humanities professor at Whitworth University who specializes in social reactions to infectious diseases. She is also author of the 2021 book, Quarantine Life from Cholera to COVID-19, What Pandemics Teach Us About Parenting, Work, Life, and Communities from the 1700s to Today. I am actually in a nursing home right now. (laughs) My grandma is dying and we're just, you know, here with her. And so I found an extra, I asked them to let me use an empty room (laughs) so I could come do this. Um, Feels rather fitting, actually, you know, because I have that chapter on death and my family and I have been talking a lot this weekend about like what a good death is and how to pursue that. And yeah. Yeah, but you're you're okay to record today. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's not. We're not. I mean, it's sad, but 
she's 91 and you can't have a better death than she's having right now with all of us around her all the time, talking to her and reading to her. And yeah. um, Yeah. So it's okay. It's actually, I don't know. I hope it's okay if we're jumping right in, but um, it actually feels really good to memorialize part of her (laughs) as part of this journey. But um, I talk in the, the death chapter about the, the fact that we need to make death more a part of our life. You know, we we're born and we hit puberty and we get married and we get pregnant and we have kids and we die. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't want to say we're not sad, but it almost feels more like, I don't know, like a space of honoring her life and thinking about her life instead of thinking of it as an end. I've been thinking a lot about her legacy and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful. I think where I'd like to sort of start this discussion is is talking about what medical humanities is, uh, because I think this is a a field that a lot of people probably don't even realize exists. And I I think it's, uh, it was fascinating. So I I had mentioned on Twitter, I loved your book. It was fantastic. Uh, But I I think, you know, I, I, I knew this field existed, but I hadn't thought a whole lot about it. And so maybe if you could just talk a little bit about what medical humanities is and, you know, that's sort of directly related to what you were just saying, but you know, what, what, what that means. Right. Yeah. So the, the easiest way to explain the medical humanities is um, things that we might be familiar with, such as medical ethics or history of medicine. Um, Those all fall under a big umbrella category of medical humanities. So, I mean, it literally is any, non-scientific, non-social scientific field that studies medicine. So um, there are anthropologists that study medicine, uh, as I said, medical history, bioethics, those all fall under the rubric. In literature, I think we're a lesser understood branch because I am a, a, my PhD is in literature, as I mentioned in the book. And even when I apply to interdisciplinary medical humanities jobs, I feel that (laughs) There's not a great understanding about what literature brings to the table. Those jobs tend to be, if they really want a humanist, they tend to go to historians. But in literature these days, a a medical humanist would be trained in a great deal of history, although I don't claim to be a true, you know, a PhD historian, but we're trained in historiographic thinking. We're trained in philosophy and ethics. Well, ethics might maybe not so much applied ethics, but philosophy for sure. And then we're also just trained how to analyze texts. So what we say is anything is a text. I mean, I've just submitted a book at MIT where I had to figure out how to MLA cite an infant formula can because we were analyzing the language on there. So we kind of do a mixed bag of literature, history, cultural studies, pop culture, and philosophy. So that's sort of my pragmatic answer that I typically give. But Functionally, the way I think of my practice of the medical humanities is that I'm trying to help us see any biases or blind spots we may be having in our research formation now um, to make our research better. So it can popularly be, I think, a misconception that Um, the way I approach or the way my field approaches medicine is to sort of debunk science or say that, you know, well, this isn't right. We need to talk about the humanistic side. 
Rather, and I was a data scientist in a past life. So I do know and respect quantitative research design, but what we aim to do is say, you know, let's be aware of the fact that we're all social creatures. We're all impacted by social factors and biases. And and if we aren't, if we want to believe that we're perfect, uh, granting fund granting agencies certainly are biased in what they fund and what they're willing to study. And these things shape the research that we're able to make. And so, you know, Science in a vacuum may be a perfect science. Our science that we make with human hands, hearts, brains, and money is never fully perfect. Um, And so perfect for me, I draw on the past to show almost as a straw man. It's really easy to see a hundred years ago where we can look back and be like, oh, those silly people. They thought they could prove racism with science. Okay, well, that's it's really easy to look at them, but now let's use the tools and the theories that helped us see that and maybe try to help us see it now so that we don't make those missteps. So, is this then related to uh, the socio scientific discursive cycle? <laughs> yes. <laughs> see, I learned from your book. <laughs> oh, you, I think you might be one of my biggest fans, and it meant so much coming from you. So for people who haven't yet read your book, although they should, uh, can you explain what the socio-scientific discursive cycle is? Yeah, it's such a mouthful. And it's something that I hesitated to put forth in the world for a really long time, except that I found that my students would walk away with this long term and say that it was the most helpful way I packaged everything I ever said. So I thought, okay. I think it's a mouthful. I don't know that it's the shortest way to understand things, but my students keep saying that. So I'll go with that. Um, that's basically a way of saying that the social and the scientific influence each other cyclically forever. Um, I talk about it um, because I, I often find that the people I have to work the hardest to convince in anything I'm saying are um, well-educated lay people that are very pro-science. Um, And I'm very pro-science, but I I think sometimes there can be a bit of a sort of almost fundamentalist insistence that science can't be scrutinized. In fact, I find scientists and doctors agree with me more than anybody because they're (laughs) at the lab benches, they're at the exam tables, seeing that science and data are messy and sometimes not enough, you know? I mean, people still die. We can't do everything. Um, so the socio-scientific discursive cycle, I say kind of for my lay population that loves science, I say, think of it like a double helix. It's circling around each other forever and shaping one another. Neither is ever alone. So when we say that science shapes the social, I mean, this is, I think, perhaps easier for us to wrap our heads around. That means that, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of a good example. Our understanding of networks and connectivity is impacted by the fact that we understand that germs leave little footprint traces from one person to the next. And we've understood that since the 1880s when microbiology um, became a popularized concept. But even in the age of COVID, I think we're more hyper aware that, you know, you could shine a black light or you could imagine, you know, these traces we all leave of skin cells and germs everywhere. So that's the way the science impacts the social. 
The social impacting the science is where it's a little bit harder for people to see. And what I would say, um, maybe a good example in the age of COVID is that that understanding has led us to think very differently about our tolerance for crowds and uh, airplanes and touching things. And that is going to lead to science to ask different questions now, such as how much can we touch something before we leave this kind of viral particle on it? How much airflow through an air conditioner is dangerous of our breath? And, you know, these are things that, and here's where I say I have trouble sometimes with the very pro-science crowd, although I am among them. We expect, we think of science as so infallible. So um, honestly, we see it as a culture. We think of it as existing in this vacuum and just being truth with a capital T is how I mm-hmm. teach my students to talk about it. Um, and yet it is incomplete and it's only as good as the questions we think to ask. And there were, you know, we talked about airborne versus um, droplet precautions before COVID, but it was COVID that pushed us to be like, well, exactly how much? Like, what is the difference? (laughs) When does it become a droplet versus airborne? When do things aerosolize? Is there a risk of aerosolization when we do CPR? How much gets through a HEPA filter? I don't know that, you know, I can't tell you exactly which of those questions we had research data on prior to COVID. But I think a lot of, you know, some of the skeptics about COVID, their sense that science doesn't know anything came from the fact that we hadn't asked those questions yet. And and the pro-science crowd always seems to think, well, science always has the answers. And Mm -hmm. so there was this sort of gap in communication where the, you know, maybe COVID skeptics, COVID deniers, COVID hesitants were like, well, see, there are no answers. Science doesn't know. And and those that were science believers, I think, in a way, had backed themselves into a corner because we'd never been pushed to think about those questions before. Yeah. And so that's a way that the social, our new fear of contact, is impacting now the things we're thinking to ask or caring to ask. And our previous, you know, blissful ignorance, I suppose, about those things um, had left us in a situation where we didn't have the answers for those issues. Yeah. So that leads very neatly then into uh, talking about Mary Mallon and uh, especially what you call this idea that that there has to be a shared reality uh, mm. and that that is part of why uh, why she is so reluctant to accept uh, the fact that she is uh, harmful to society, so reluctant to accept the fact that she needs to, to stop working as a, a cook. So I guess I, what listeners really need to understand to understand the story of Mary Mellon is the development of germ theory and how recent it was at the time. So I wonder if we could sort of talk through that a little bit about what that development of germ theory looks like and why someone, you know, in the very early 20th century wouldn't necessarily accept germ theory as, you know, sort of given like most of us might. Right. Um, yeah. So if you want to talk about niche academic specialties, my <laughs> niche, 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 niche is the development and popularization of germ theory in the 1880s. So like, this is my thing. Um, that being said, sometimes I'm not the best at explaining it because I can't see the forest for the trees. So <laughs> feel free to redirect me. But yes, um, 
really germ theory in my research, I always argue that it was not fully disseminated through the broad public understanding until really the mid 1880s. You could even argue for the 1890s. Of course, scientists you know, knew more about it, um, but that still was limited to the late 1870s that scientists were really discovering and understanding germs as a theory, a theoretical model for explaining disease. And at the time, scientific journals, well, they really weren't in existence in the way they are now where they're so specialized. And a lot of scientific findings would be published just in like the New York Times, let's say, uh, their version of the New York Times. So your upper middle class and upper class person would know all about this. So then that takes time to trickle down so that everybody in every class understands it. And I think we see today, right, there's a skepticism sometimes about authority. Um, I think it looks different now, but I think the lower classes and the working classes at that time probably felt like, you know, what is what has a doctor ever done for me? I can't afford a doctor. And now I'm supposed to believe this new theory of how disease happens when, you know, for all intents and purposes, it didn't really change anything. There weren't medicines. Um, I think I say this almost verbatim in the book, you know, by the 1890s, you might know that you had gotten cholera when you started puking, but you were still toast. Like it, didn't, it maybe almost made it worse because you were just like, well, I've got 24 hours. And so I think particularly for the working class for whom this model, whether they knew it or not, did not change the fact that they had to go into a crowded, poorly ventilated factory day in and day out. I think, you know, there was some obvious either suspicion or lack of concern or like, what does this matter to me? You know, kind of a stick it to the man attitude I can envision. And so, yes, for Malin living in America, she's 1909-ish. This is, you know, reasonably only 20 years after germ theory sort of became solidified, at least in the middle class. And I'm trying to think if there's an idea that's only been around with us for 20 years that we could use to parallel, like um, a scientific understanding. I don't know. Maybe this is kind of a silly one that matters less to our lives. But like, is Pluto a planet? I mean, <laughs> there's all kinds of memes of millennials being like, you're not taking Pluto away from me. <laughs> and, you know, even though that's humor, I often tell my students, humor tells us so much about the pulse of a society. And so actually, it might be a good parallel to say, like, I, st I still have feelings about Pluto. And what does it matter to any of us? Pluto, it doesn't matter. It's just like we have a sense of identification with it. And so I think it might actually be a decent parallel for something that both seemed very distant from these people and yet was asking them to change a formative part of their reality that, you know, essentially ask them to see marching into their factory jobs every day as dangerous and threatening when they still had to do it regardless. So here you have Malin, Mary Malin. She's in the American context. She's an Irish immigrant. They were, um, there was a ton of racism against Irish immigrants at this time. And she had managed to work her, her way up to a cook position, which was a very, very good job for an Irish immigrant in New York at the time. And yeah, I mean, literally she's cooking one day and this man bum rushes the door. I mean, he truly, from my readings, he truly just barges in. I'm not 
quite sure how he got through the family. Um, it's possible the family let him in. I think we know, but I'm blanking on the details. Kitchens also had a separate door, so he might have just come in. But he barges into the kitchen where she's cooking and is like, basically is acting kind of like a policeman. He's like, stop right now. Like, drop everything. You are killing people. And she chases him out with um, a carving fork, <laughs> is what the documents tell us. And I think it's probably true. Um, because the, the cook was the boss of that space. And I think particularly in a time where we talk about racial justice a lot right now in America, I think we can understand like that was her space that she had made for herself where she had a little bit of authority in a very prejudiced society and, and, you know, a living wage. She was doing better than really should have been expected for somebody in her demographic. And he comes in here like rambling nonsense about her kill. I mean, it just wouldn't have made sense to her in that moment, I think anyway. And then, you know, he comes back and they talk more and, Eventually, she does agree to go under quarantine years later. But I just think, yeah, it was a very big ask. Even once she could be made to understand, I think, you know, it's funny. Like, what is belief, right? Like, mm -hmm. we we hear and we listen and we understand. And is that belief or is belief when we deeply believe enough to do something because of that? And And I think, you know, I say in the book, like COVID is the perfect parallel. I think each and every one of us is being intellectually dishonest if we don't acknowledge that we've had a moment where we're like, but I feel fine. Mm -hmm. I should be able to go do what I want. I think there are people of us who have, you know, put that to the side and listened to the authority figures. And But I just, I think we're being dishonest if we don't say we haven't had a moment where we're like, but I can go to the grocery store. Like, I'm not sick. I know my body. And so it is a big ask that we're asking people who, for whatever reasons, you know, whether they're in the Black community, who has a lot of historic reasons not to trust the medical establishment, um, whether they're in the migrant immigrant labor community, that's like, it doesn't matter. Like, you want food on your table? Like, I, I got, and I have to feed my family, so I've got to be out there regardless. Or whether you're talking to, you know, a right-wing MAGA hat wearing, like, that's not a group that I particularly understand well, but I do think it's coming from a similar place um, of like, why are you telling me this new information about my body that I've never heard before in my life? And then we're just filtering it through the social lens that we already have, right? Yeah, I was really struck too in the book, you talk about how we in this country so often say, listen to your body you know your own body. Uh, and this has been a, a particular struggle for me. I have illness anxiety. And so I, I've gone through a, a long, uh, went through a lot of therapy to try to figure out how to essentially not listen to my body. <laughs> that I had to be like, okay, well, that one little tiny pain isn't cancer or maybe is, but I don't know that it's cancer. And so Thinking through, uh, and I, it particularly struck me when you said it's it's cheaper and easier as a society to put this on individuals and uh, and to blame individuals. So uh, Mary Mellon is a perfect example of this. She is very much blamed as an individual for for you know sort of being the the cause of all of our problems and you know in in popular conceptions killing thousands of people and stuff, which of course isn't true. 
And so, uh, yeah, I guess maybe if you could sort of expand on that idea a little bit about the the listen to your body and the individual body and thinking about individualism instead of thinking about society and you know what what it means for to for us to have sort of public health, uh, which has been such a struggle in the past two years. Yeah. I mean, the very, very short response I have initially is that, you know, I think the American model has backfired because we want to just make it about like, we're privatized healthcare. We, you know, don't have the sort of national networks a lot of countries have for healthcare. And so we say like, do your own breast exams, notice your own body. You're the one that can protect yourself. And, And while on some level that's fundamentally true, I suppose, I think in this moment it backfired then when we were like, oh no, your body's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So for the people, you know, that already mistrusted the government or already were suspicious, it's like, you're telling me my own, like literally our bodies are the only way we have to access reality. So, you know, typically if we say we've lost a grip on what our senses are telling us and that alignment with reality, we call that a mental disorder. It's so we're asking people to go to that place where they can't even trust the evidence of their senses. I think we're, I think it's a little bit weird to not acknowledge that that's a huge ask. Um, And maybe, you know, I I really admire that you're willing to share about your anxiety because I actually have the same thing. I'm just now sort of opening up about this in public forums more and more, but I'm a survivor of Munchausen by proxy, which is um, a disease we see a lot on TV Uh, where a caregiver makes a child ill for their attention as a caregiver. Um, I was never like poisoned, but I was told I was ill a lot and put on a lot of pharmaceuticals all throughout my childhood, Um, which the more I talk to people seems to be the more common model than the sort of sensational things we see on TV. And so, yeah, I mean, I have had a lot of therapy too. I have a ton of illness, anxiety, I grapple a lot with a deep fear that I'm dying and I've had to do a ton of therapy to be like, yeah, don't listen to your body. Your body's lying to you. <laughs> You're hyper aware of it. And and that's ironically to undo 20 years of gaslighting where again, I was taught, don't listen to your body, listen to what external authorities tell you about your body. So I think, you know, perhaps talking to you, it just made me feel like in some ways, you know, this is why this has been my contribution to the the problem because I've been through a lot in terms of understanding the body and perhaps I'm like uniquely able to say this isn't so simple for everyone. And it may be why you were drawn to my reasoning about it. I've heard this from a few other people that were like, I've been struggling so much to just accept risk and deal with it after COVID. And you know, perhaps that's why like a certain subset has been helped by my book because I do come from that particular experience of like, these are huger asks than I think, you know, if you're very neurotypical, maybe it's not a big ask, but um, both because of my experiences and then the work I've done where I'm like, well, why have we started telling, you know, girls at 13 to do breast exams when there's a reasonably low risk for most of those girls. And I went through a long period where I had a lot of breast cancer fears. And so I've done a lot of research on the medical history of breast cancer awareness and tracking and the extents to which those things actually help people. Even um, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Forces have started to recognize that 
these things aren't really saving lives, but we still do it. And that's because once you, once you present a risk to someone, because we're very bad at assessing risk on individual human levels, most people are like, well, I'm not going to let it happen to me. Like, I understand the risk is almost none, but like, I'm still going to do the breast exams because so it's, it's one thing I haven't, you know, I don't have the answer to this, but it's like, how do you retract a fear that you've instilled in a society once you've instilled it in them? So, you know, on the one side of the continuum, we have like, know your body, surveil your body, track everything that got people like you and me caused problems possibly before COVID. It's definitely caused people problems during COVID. In fact, I don't know about you, but I felt like one of the calmest people during COVID because I was like, <laughs> sounds like the rest of y'all haven't been in 10 years of therapy to cope with the constant <laughs> fear of the invisible things lurking in your body. Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm like, this is a, and I actually saw that. I read some articles from like therapists saying their OCD patients and patients with health anxiety were the, they were like, yeah, that's another day for me. Now you all know <laughs> what I lived through. But yeah, now I'm seeing it's like, how do we pull back ever from this collective fear we've introduced to people that you may not know your own body, which I think, you know, you and I have been dealing with how to moderate that for a while. It sounds like, what do we do with a society that may now be like, I can't know anything. <laughs> and I don't know the answer, but I think we need to speak to that and identify that as the, the, the problem point, the fulcrum where things went off balance and then start to develop and hone our research efforts to say, what do you do? How do you pull people back from that brink and help them? And I think it's going to be interdisciplinary. I think it's going to be people like you and I who do history and theories of the body, and it's going to be therapists. Um, there's a great book by a medical humanist that I really respect, Kate Belling, called Hypochondria. And she just talks about these logical slippery slopes that it, it builds on. And I think identifying that as the presenting problem will then help psychotherapists, researchers, clinical psych researchers to develop research questions and protocol that can maybe build us back up a, a path out of this. Yeah. So the the sort of last thing I think I want to talk about with uh, Mary Mellon is this. Uh, you know, I was I was trying to sort of tell the the nutshell version to my kids, and you know, I could see them sort of swinging back and forth between like, oh, she's a villain, to like, oh, wait, she's not so bad. And then my last point was there were lots of other healthy carriers, and none of them were treated like this. And then immediately they were like, oh, well, that's terrible. That's not fair to her. You know what what happened here? So what, you know what. Why was she the the sort of one who was who was villainized in this way? Why uh, why if there were so many healthy carriers, were they not all locked up? And of course, there's lots of good reasons for that. But you know, it, it would have been cheaper for the state to just give her a stipend to live on rather than put her up on an island for <laughs> 20 years. So, you know, what what do we know about what what might have been going on there? Okay, well, to say one thing, I've never even thought of the stipend solution. And what does that <laughs> say about our like hyper, like individualistic culture of like, you're on your own? I never even thought of that with all the research I've done. But yeah, it would have been. I don't know, Mary, I get really emotional about Mary Mallon. I mean, I think I say this in the book, but like, because I read a lot of firsthand accounts from people in these times, I think you probably do too. They're people to me with like, hopes and dreams. And, and, you know, we know people back in the 1800s would like burn their diaries at the end of their lives. Cause 
there were things they didn't want people to know about them, just like us, you know? And I don't know, I think I almost, I've been pulled back by other scholars who have helped me and done some of the, you know, big books on Mary Mallon. And then I've talked with them. I'm almost like overly sympathetic. I see her as like (laughs) fully a victim. And then, you know, people have said like, well, okay, well, she was a, she could have, you know, maybe behaved a little differently. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So there's entire books about Mary Mallon, um, a friend and colleague and just really respected scholar of mine, Priscilla Wald, has a whole book called Contagious. And she's a chapter on Mary Mallon. And she and I have chatted. And she was really the one that kind of said, you know, you're being, she didn't say it this way, but she was like, what the dilemma is, the dilemma. Like, what do you do? And who is at fault? And what could that medical examiner have done? I I mean, she was killing people. But what do you do? And and I don't know that I have the answers, but I think it's so great that you had your kids sit with the uncertainty. So much of the problem that I see both with pro-science, anti-science, science, you know, whatever, like we, we want it to be clear. And especially I think in America, we want quick, clear, ready-made answers to endlessly complex things that involve humans. And I think we get into these errors when we don't put the pause and see, you know, all these nuances of like, well, yes, but also this. And um, there's a, a phrase in medieval literature called the sick et non, the yes, but no. And I think it's like kind of two things can be true, right? But then when you come to public health, it's like, okay, that's fine, but what do we do? <laughs> and that's why I think the medical humanities can help us think perhaps outside of the boxes that we unconsciously limit ourselves to. For instance, I had never thought once of a stipend. And I'm a huge proponent of universal basic income, but I'd never retroactively been like, hey, <laughs> you know, they could have given her just some money, you know? She still didn't make that much of the cook, so it wouldn't have taken a lot. Now that, I think, there was definitely, when you talk about a stipend, there was a real resistance to the idea. There was a, a sense that the poor needed to work and if you just gave them money, they would go to moral ruin, you know? And so I, I'm sure that was a big part of it. There's an entire book by Judith Walzer, Leave It, on Typhoid Mary. And she says throughout the book, um, quite repetitively, that she really can't account fully for why what happened to Malin happened to her. Um, of course, the fact that she was a female and an Irish immigrant, I think it's undeniable. But Leave It goes into great detail about some of the histories of other healthy carriers who I think some of them were Irish. Many of them were poor because at that point you weren't going to be able to trace like middle-class people in any way. Um, And she, she seems a bit at a loss, you know, like she, she seems to think there's more to it because there were other poor immigrants, but she doesn't account for it beyond that, beyond female and immigrant. And, I guess the best I've been able to make of it is that it was those sort of prejudicial factors, but also, also just sort of happenstance. I think she was in the wrong, she was in a place where she could be traced more readily because she was a cook. And so she wasn't an itinerant worker in the same way, maybe like a factory or farm laborer would have been um, because she was cooking, although there were other healthy carrier cooks. And then he just locked onto her. Like, I, I don't know. I think it became this sort of 
mission for the doctor. But yeah, we don't, I, I don't know. What, what are your kind of gut feelings? Since, since there are no clear answers, I think <laughs> yeah. we can speculate. Yeah, I mean, probably she didn't help herself by reacting violently <laughs> initially, you know, and totally understandably, I think if someone burst into my workplace and, <laughs> uh, you know, said I, I had to give them my stool sample, I'd probably react violently too. So, like, I, I get it, but but I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of initial thing is what what made him sort of lock on to, to her and, and want to yeah. sort of treat her differently. Well, now that you mentioned that, I do think that's come up in some of the speculations um, that and it, it works to reinforce this idea of the recalcitrant poor who don't who are like sort of immoral, which is what they thought at the time and and needed to sort of be policed for the betterment of society. I think her reaction just, you, you know what, I've completely overlooked and you're right. Leave it does talk about that, that it just allowed them to stereotype her in a certain way. And like, think about that. I mean, we are still, if you, if you know who she is, then you're told a very certain stereotypical image of her typhoid Mary 160 years later. I mean, I try very vehemently to call her Mary Mallon, but if people know who she is, it's not by that name. And like, think about that. Can you imagine that like, you could be somebody I don't know. Perhaps it's wrong to say that you could have made a bad choice during COVID. Maybe that's too hot of a topic right now. But that 150 years after your death, all anybody would ever know about you is that you made a bad choice once. It just feels like, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't link it to COVID. Maybe that's too sensitive for people. But it's like, there's little things I like about her that she she had a dog and, you know, she loved her pet. And like, there's more to all of us, you know, than... Yeah, and she was then defined for all time by a disease that she never even had any symptoms for. <laughs> yes. And like by her poop and like, I just, yeah. I think, I don't know, I'm not trying to make excuses for anyone, but you know, I think we even say of like, I don't know, people who have committed crimes while on drugs or something, we all, we, we say like some people deserve to be remembered by more than their worst decision. And so I think like we should be willing to give that to something like healthy or asymptomatic carriers where it may actually be hard to believe and they might not really have deeply thought it was a problem, which seems different, you know, like a little than somebody who's, you know, gotten into a negligent car accident or something like that um, and made a more conscious choice. All right. Well, people should definitely go get a copy of your book. Uh, and I, I think I've mentioned you, but I love the audio book, which I believe is your friend. Yes. My college roommate, I always wanted to go be a professor and she always wanted to be an actress and she's developed a great career as a voice actress. And so it was, it's just great because maybe as you can attest to listeners, um, there's a lot of myself in the book. I break the fourth wall a lot. I give hinky dad jokes and she knows how I talk. So, <laughs> so it's more of like sort of my personality there. I love the audiobook too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. Uh, so people should go get that. I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, and Kari, thank you. This was, uh, this was really excellent. And I am, I'm so glad to now know, I, I didn't even know Mary Mellon's last name prior to, to looking into this. So I'm so glad to know oh. her as a person and to know this story about her. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.